you have your Bible, I want to ask you to open it to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 will be our text this morning. We started into a series dealing with the, the solas or the alone, the alones. These are five truths that serve as the foundation for our theology. Uh, we are Protestants, meaning we are in protest against many things that we see in the Catholic Church moving away from tradition. And the 31st of October marks the 500th anniversary of when a monk by the name of Martin Luther had a sermon of 95 points that he nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. That was kind of like the announcement board. So he was saying, here's 95 things, issues that are troublesome about the Catholic theology. And that's considered a, a watershed moment in the Reformation. The Reformation was not just one event. It was a period of time where men such as John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Luther, and, and one of my favorites just because of his name, Ulrich Zwingli. Um, boy, you just got to have a smile when you say Ulrich Zwingli. Um, men that stood, stood for the truth of the gospel. And we've already examined Scripture alone. Scripture's our authority. It's God's revelation. It's how we know Him. And that revelation culminates and points to Jesus Christ. Nathan very ably preached in the last two weeks on that we are saved by grace alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It is by God's grace alone. And if that don't get an amen, I don't know what will. We are saved by grace through faith, not of any work. We have no room to boast before God. But our grace and our faith all point to and are focused upon Jesus Christ. So this morning from this passage, I want us to take a look at the great truth of Christ alone. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Would you please bow with me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to apply your word. We ask for the renewing of our minds, O oh Lord, that we would not only understand this great truth as much as we can, but that you would transform our thinking and our hearts so that we would desire for Christ to be glorified. Help us to stand firm upon this truth that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. When we talk about the issue of Christ alone, 
The issue that was at the forefront of the reformers was this. Is the equation that leads to our salvation, Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing? Or is it Jesus plus our works that lead to salvation? Is it Jesus plus nothing equals we are saved? Or is it Jesus plus the prayers of Mary or the saints that lead to our salvation? The men whom I mentioned just a few moments ago stood upon the truth of the gospel that it is Jesus and His work upon the cross and His resurrection alone that brings about our salvation. Nothing can be added to nor taken away from the work of Jesus Christ to lead us to being saved. Today we stand firm upon that truth. We believe unequivocally and without doubt that Jesus Christ alone is the way of being saved. We believe that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there was no doubt in His words and there is no doubt in our belief that Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation. The struggle today in our world is that we live in a culture that says that there are many ways to God. So while you and I today may not struggle with, is it Jesus plus the prayers of saints that have already died? We do struggle with, is it right to say Jesus is the only way it to be saved in the midst of a world that holds there are many ways of salvation? In fact, when we stand upon the truth that Jesus alone brings salvation, we will be accused of being arrogant and narrow-minded. Because in the world's views, there are many ways to be saved. And the culture around us will be okay as long as we say that Jesus is a way to be saved. But to stand that Jesus exclusively is the only means of salvation will cause the world to look upon us with disdain. So is it reasonable for us, as believers living in the year 2017, to hold firmly to the idea that salvation is by Jesus and Jesus alone? Well, this challenge is nothing new. Believers have always lived in a world that held to a pluralistic view of the gods. Now, this is what I mean. When Timothy was called to pastor in Ephesus, he was pastoring in a place that held to the worship of the goddess Artemis above all else. That was the patron god of the city. Other gods would be worshipped also. Aphrodite, Apollo, Zeus. Heroes would be venerated. So here is young Timothy, and he's placed down in First Church Ephesus and said to preach. Thank you very much. There's no doubt that Timothy had to feel like he was wearing a suit made out of meat, and around him was wolves. How is he supposed to do this? Paul tells him how he was to stand firm on the truth. Look back to chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, this charge I give to you, Timothy... In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, here it is, wage the good warfare. Recognize it will be a battle. Timothy, the culture you're in believes in many gods. They're not going to applaud your message of one God and one mediator. So wage the good war warfare. 
So how do you do that? Verse 19. Holding faith in a good conscience. In other words, holding on to your faith and knowing that God is holding on to you and conducting yourself in a manner so that no accusation can be made against you. That's how you wage the good warfare. What does this warfare look like? That's where you move into verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, here's how you fight the good war, Timothy. Here's how you're going to stand firm in a world that says there are many ways of salvation. You pray. You start by beseeching God. You pray with supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people, for kings, and everyone in high places. It's implied in verse 4 that you play for their salvation. For God is pleased as we pray. And God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this gives us a clue then. What are we praying for? Well, the clue we've seen, if God desires salvation, we pray for their salvation and for their knowledge of the truth. But in verses 5 through 7, that truth is fleshed out more. This is the truth that we are praying for the world to know. And where does it begin? Look, if you will, in verse 5. There is one God. This serves as the foundational truth. There is one God. This is a foundational truth from both Testaments. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, contains what in the, the Jewish faith is called the Shema. It comes from the very first word, here. The Hebrew word here is Shema. Shema, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a way of saying that He is the only God. Now that statement, there is only one God, is a radical statement. It is a statement that would cause much trouble for anyone that would hold to it. Now use your imagination with me for a moment to get a feel for the trouble that this foundational truth will cause. In the time that Timothy was preaching, every working group had a guild or a union. So just imagine, Mark is a silversmith. That's why I make my living. I work with silver or maybe I work with other metals. I would, by nature, be a part of a union, a guild. Every guild had its own god. For the metal workers, it may be Hephaestus, the god of, of forging and of iron. So my union worships Hephaestus. We want him to bless our work. We want to do good work. We want to make a living. So now all of a sudden, worker Mark is saved. I show up at work on Monday and I say, Whoa, I can't, I can't pray to Hephaestus anymore. I believe in the one true God. I can't do that. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be kicked out of the union. Because guess what? I've just angered Hephaestus. And everybody else wants his blessing. So now I'm out of a job. That's fine, you say. I'll just find somewhere else to work. Well, guess what? These unions were connected by letter. So now a letter goes out to all the other metalworking unions in the cities around. Mark is a non-believer. He has rejected the God of our union. If you hire him, your work is going to tank. So now because I profess faith in one God, I'm out of a job and I'm wondering how I'll put bread on the table. Do you understand the cost of following Christ? That's what they faced. And we face it today also. It's funny how even though it seems so much has changed, so many things are the same. I'm a fan of college basketball. 
So my heart's been broken by the, the, the accusations of scandal and the FBI investigation into several schools of taking briberies to, from shoe companies to, to hire players. But I watched with interest when Rick Pitino, the former head coach of Louisville, was interviewed. He was dismissed because of these accusations. In the interview, he was asked point blank, did you take a bribe? He answered unequivocally, no, I did not. And then he looked at the interviewer and he said, and Jay, the only person I really have to answer to is God. And God knows I didn't do this. Several times he came back to that statement. I will only answer to God. I will only answer to God. But the final time he said this, all of us will answer to whatever God we believe in. You see what happened? All of us will answer to whatever God. There's not just one God. It is the God to which you pray to. One of the things that we will often hear is, well, all, all religions are the same, aren't they? After all, don't we pray to the same God? We'll hear people say, well, after all, Allah is just the same as the Christian God, just by a different name. But that will not hold up under scrutiny. If you will read Muslim theology and compare it to Christian theology, you will say that these are contradictory views of God. I'm fascinated that in our hunger for spiritual truth in America, Buddhism is on the rise. So many will say, Buddhism, Buddhism is the way. It enlightens the mind and, and you're just praying to the God, but you define that God. But you recognize that Buddhism doesn't even believe in a personal God at all. God is simply ultimate reality. There is no God in that belief system that has created history and intervened in history. So you see, it won't do to say we all pray to the same God. But doesn't that mean, though, that it's arrogant? That's the accusation. Now, no doubt there are Christians that have acted arrogantly. That may come as a shock to you. But that's not the accusation here. The accusation is that any claim to absolute truth is an arrogant claim because we're claiming that we know the truth and others don't. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Every religion, every religion claims to be exclusive truth. Every religion. Let's take Buddhism that I mentioned just a moment ago. Many will say, well, since Buddhism doesn't believe in one true God, you're free to define God however you want. That's simply not true. The Dalai Lama, the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, said this, and I quote, He was asked the question, can Buddha provide the ultimate source of refuge? And he answered, Here you see, it is necessary to examine what is meant by liberation or salvation. Liberation in which a mind that understands the sphere of reality annihilates all defilements in the sphere of reality. Here's what I want you to hear. is a state that only Buddhism can accomplish. That kind of nirvana is only explained in the Buddhist scriptures and only achieved through Buddhist practice. Now the only reason I quote that is to shatter the lie that says all religions are open because that's simply not true. At some point, every religion claims to be exclusive in its truth. 
So what do we do? Believers, instead of shrinking back, we meet people where they are. And I would suggest just lay the cards on the table. And if you're talking with your neighbor and they say, well, I believe in many gods, you say, well, you know what? I believe there is one true God. You explain to me why you believe what you believe, and I'll explain what I believe. And go from there. That's what we're told to do in 1 Peter 3. Be able to give a reason for the hope that you have. Because as we talk about the one true God as revealed in the Scripture, we come to this issue. How can we know that God? Look at verse 5. There is one mediator. We can say there is one true God and He desires for men and women to know salvation. And so He has provided the mediator between Himself and the world. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Now a mediator is someone who acts as a link between two parties. Two sides that are at enmity with one another that need to be reconciled. The mediator acts as a reconciler who guarantees the agreement between the two. So when he says in verse 5 that there is one mediator, Paul is saying there is only one way to be reconciled to God. There is only one way to bridge the gap. That Jesus is that way. Through Jesus and Jesus alone can we be saved. Now there are three truths about this mediator that's put forward here. First is this. Notice in verse 5. He is the man, Christ Jesus. First truth is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In verse 5, he emphasizes the man. And that is because a mediator must represent both sides. I want you to notice something interesting. Look at how God is described in verse 3. God, our Savior. Our salvation begins and ends with God. But how does God bring about salvation? Through the mediator who is also fully God and fully man. That's the mystery of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. In the words of the Nicene Creed, Creed, Jesus is fully God of fully God, very God of very God, but also fully man. He had to be man because as humanity, we owed God the price for our sins. We were under judgment. So only a human could make the payment that humans owe to God. So that is exactly what Jesus did. He became man so that as man, he could make the payment to God for our sins. If the mediator is like a bridge, a bridge must be anchored on both sides of the river to be effective. If it's not anchored on both, it's going to fall at some point. Jesus, on one hand, is fully God. When we see Jesus, we see God. But he is also fully man, fully human. So that he was tempted in every way we are tempted. So that he is able to empathize and to sympathize with us and come alongside us. And as he came alongside us, here's the second truth. He gave himself as a ransom. Now look at verse 5, verse 6, I'm sorry. He gave himself. That's an important phrase to grab to. Paul said the same thing in Philippians when he said that Jesus emptied himself. You see, there are some today who accuse God of divine child abuse because of the suffering of Jesus upon the cross. 
They argue that this, uh, this Christian notion of God killing Jesus is simply perpetuating violence within the family. And so they argue you shouldn't look to the cross. They say Jesus was an unwilling victim. You know, often within the church, we have fostered that type of thinking without realizing it. There's an illustration that preachers used to use. I don't know how much it's used today, but I remember it from my childhood. And it was used to, to make the point of the, the great sacrifice God made in Jesus' death. You may have heard it. It goes something like this. There was a man one time that worked at a drawbridge. His job was to raise and lower the bridge to let boats pass by and then to be sure it was down so a train could go over it. One day he took his son to work. His son was there in the control room with him watching his dad move the handles and his dad raised the bridge to let a boat through. But then there was a mix-up in communication. This, this man found out that a train was coming quickly and he had to lower the bridge immediately or else the train would wreck. He started his work to lower the bridge when he noticed his son was missing. And then to his horror, the illustration goes, he looked out and he saw his son playing on the gears and he realized in order to save the people on the train he would have to sacrifice his son and so tearfully the conductor reached up and he pulled the handle and the gears moved so the bridge could lower and the people were saved but at the cost of his son's death that is not the gospel that illustration is wrong. Jesus was not an unwilling victim just twiddling his thumbs while God sent him to the cross. The scripture emphasizes over and over and over again that he himself went, that he gave himself, that he willingly went to the cross. You say, Pastor, what about in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, Lord, I'm struggling with this, but not my will, but your will be done. You see Jesus submitting to the will of the Father on his own volition saying, your will be done and I will be obedient. Obedient. His life was not taken from him. Jesus gave his life. As the old song says, he could have called 10,000 angels when he was up on the cross, but he didn't. He died willingly saying, it is finished. He gave up his life on our behalf. So don't let anybody fool you. The cross was not in divine child abuse. It was an act of sacrificial love where God in the flesh willingly took upon our sin. That's described in verse 6, that he gave himself. What did Jesus give himself for? As a ransom. A ransom is a price paid to free a slave. There's a unique twist on the word for ransom here. This, this word used in the Greek New Testament is the only time it's used because this word carries the weight of a ransom paid by a substitute. Now, if a ransom had to be paid to set us free, begs the question, what were we enslaved? Point three things out. First, we were slaves to sin. Recognize we live in a world of addictions. Realize, believer, every sin is addictive. Our natures go toward sin like steel toward a magnet. We're slaves to it. That's why you often find yourself thinking, well, I, I, I shouldn't do it, but we do it anyway. We were slaves to death can't escape it. 
we are also slaves under God's wrath, His judgment. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. You'll see it up on the screen. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. We're storing up wrath in our rebellion. But the good news is, is that Jesus himself gave himself as a ransom, one to set us free from sin. How did he do that? By becoming sin on our behalf. You'll see up on the screen 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. How are we set free from sin? Because Jesus took our sin upon himself and paid the penalty. He did that so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took the chains of death. He died the death we deserved. And he overcame it. And thirdly, he bore God's wrath. The punishment we deserve, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for. In verse 6, we find the third truth about our mediator. Not only is he fully man, not only did he give himself as a ransom, but third, he is a testimony. He is a testimony to the love of God and God's desire for people to be saved. It is the cross of Christ that serves as an eternal reminder of God's love. That Jesus died so that all who come to faith can be saved. And he died at the right time. So if we ever wonder, does God really love me? We look at the cross. Does God care? We look at the cross. Does God desire and know we are suffering? We look at the cross and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is. And his suffering is redemptive. The late Charles Colson lived his life in the ministry after coming to faith of bringing about prison reform. Founded the ministry Prison Fellowship. About 20 to 25 years before his death, he recorded visiting the most unique prison he had ever visited in his entire life. It was called Humatia. It's in Brazil. This prison was unique because the re repetition rate of, of men who spent time there and were released was next to nothing compared to all the other prisons. He'd heard things about this prison, and he, was, he wanted to visit it himself. So he and his group arrived one day. The gates swung open, and he was shocked to find that it was one of the inmates that opened the gate and held the keys. Colson said, can you explain this? The inmate said that when he first heard he was being transferred to Humatia, he thought, man, I'm going to be able to escape like you wouldn't believe. But he said, once I got here, I didn't want to leave. He said, they took off the handcuffs of steel and put on handcuffs of love. Because said, show me more. He said, they walked in and he looked around and everything was freshly painted. There were murals on the wall with Bible verses. The prison was self-sustaining with a garden. Guards were pretty much non-existent. Oh, they were there. But they were interacting with the inmates. Because the, the prison had been operated upon the principles of the gospel. Colson asked a question. Do you all still have a maximum security? His God said, yes, we do. And there's one prisoner still in it. Colson said, I would, I'd like to see that. 
I'd like to meet this one prisoner that's not been impacted by, by all this love. The prisoner said, I'll take you there, but I want to warn you, it's not pretty. Kosa said, it's okay. I've seen maximum security, solitary confinement holes before. He said they walked down steps and the paint on the walls faded from a bright white to a dingy gray. They came to a solid steel door. Colson said, go ahead and open it. The prisoner stuck the keys in and opened, swung the door open. The room was dark except for one light bulb hanging from the ceiling by a single strand of electric cord. And underneath that light, Colson saw a cross. The prisoner said, see, Jesus is doing time for the rest of us. He's serving our penalty. He has served our penalty. Crimes of which we are guilty, He has paid for. And only through Christ alone can we know God and be reconciled to Him. So I ask you today, are you standing upon Christ alone and His righteousness? If not, I want to invite you this morning that when we begin to sing, to come forward. I'll be at the front, Nathan will be at the front, and if you want to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we would be thrilled to explain the gospel. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. I know in many ways... You may be thinking, well, that just sounds too good to be true, that we can be forgiven. I want to assure you that it is true. Jesus lived and he died and he rose from the dead. His suffering is complete. He has paid the price. And now the invitation is extended to all who would believe. All who would be willing to repent of sin and confess Jesus as Lord may come. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your grace and mercy you provided the ransom. And we thank Jesus for his willingness to die on our behalf, that he was not coerced or forced, but he willingly laid down his life as the sacrificial penalty for our sins. So Lord, I pray that you would draw, draw all men and women unto yourself, that we would know eternal life through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And if you need to respond, please come as we begin to sing.